Hi, my name is Jovi. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Crime Stories. A weekly true crime podcast where you pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. All night. All day. All night long. All All night. All All night. night. (laughs) (laughs) In this case, it'll be all day because this is going, this is another morning recording session. So morning. Morning, morning, morning. Oh, Um, brother. Yeah. So this is going to be another me episode and me as in Jovi. It's a Jovi. It's a Jovi episode. Um, so that means that Charlie is going to be doing our true crime headline today. <laughs> so, so Charlie, take it away. Um, so I have one that gets me real mad. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> All right. So back in 2014, there was a case locally here in the in this area of florida um where a 71 year old man who happened to be a retired police captain was at the movie theater with Mm, his wife mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the man now mind you movie had not started yet previews were still on and there was a man with his wife in front of him on his cell phone and apparently the 71 year old man was so mad about this happening that he began to argue with the i think 43 year old man about having his <clears throat> phone out during a movie even though like again i said movie hadn't started yet mm. so this person <laughs> 71 year old person seven, uh, 43 was the other man yes i was right 71 year old person um started to argue with the man in front of him and the argument escalated to a point where this person got up because he was so angry. He left the movie theater to complain to the manager and then came back and continued to argue with the 43-year-old man. The 43-year-old man threw his popcorn at the 71-year-old man. So the 71-year-old man took out his gun and shot and killed the 43-year-old man. Mm, I remember this now. It took eight years for this to go to trial. Eight years <sighs> that the 71-year-old person was sitting at home with his family and eight years for his defense to build a case. I don't like that. Try to claim stand your ground. He was only accused of second degree murder. Finally went to trial this week. And last night he was acquitted. You gotta be fucking kidding me, right? I am not. Is it because he was previously on the force? You know, there's a whole lot of reasons why I think that this happened. Let's hear them. Or do you not want to say? I don't even, it's, it is what it is. I just, I'm, it makes me so mad. You know, there's those, you know, there's those cases that just like get you. Mm -hmm. There's something about it that just like really gets you. Mm -hmm. This one gets me. (laughs) This Mm -hmm. one just gets me riled up. It gets me so upset. Um, It did from the very, very, very beginning. I used to drive past this movie theater on my way to work. And every single day I would think about this when I was driving to work and it would just make me mad. And it would make me even more mad at the fact that this person still hadn't gone to trial yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, he threw a bag of popcorn at him who then took out a handgun and fired hitting the man in the chest. Unreal. This old man. There's nothing that says there's nothing that should have provoked him to take out his gun and shoot him. He threw he popcorn. He said he was fearful for his life. Oh, he give me a, He was in fear for his life. He give was me a fear, goddamn he was break. He was in fear of being attacked. 
give me a goddamn break. You already complained to the manager. You knew they were going to be there momentarily. Like, what the Legit. fuck? And my whole thing is, is look, nobody is saying that, you know, whatever. <laughs> Just you, you couldn't have moved your seat. Right. <laughs> Right. Pissed you off that much? You couldn't move your seat. I just, I, and my whole my other issue with this is you were the one with the gun, and you're the one who escalated the argument. Correct, correct. You are one hundred percent at fault. Yes, you knew you knew what was sitting in your pocket. Yes, and yet you stood there. I I can't. It gets me so mad. It gets me so mad. It honestly almost feels like he wanted it to escalate. I 1000% agree with you, my friend. Like, it's like, oh, okay, go ahead. Keep talking back. Keep, you know, whatever. And then he he wanted the thrill of shooting. You know, like, I'm sorry. Like, I know that sounds very presumptuous, but people like things like that. And being that he, mm-hmm. maybe I shouldn't say this. Oh, he was a retired cop, man. He yeah. wanted to play hero one last time. That's that's what I was going to say. Just, <laughs> I, 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 it's one that will never it's it's a it's a story that will never not make me angry mm-hmm. and i knew last night that it went to the jury mm-hmm. but i did not know he was acquitted until i just looked it up mm. now so now it's like fresh in my mind yeah <laughs> and um yeah i'm angry i'm angry he needs to put himself in the place where what if that happened to his son cuz that person could have oh, been he his son He's, he doesn't seem to care. He seems to think he's 100% perfectly justified in doing what he, he did. He doesn't he care does. that he killed a 43-year-old man in front of his wife. Wow. He, he was in wow. fear for his life. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Popcorn. Mm-hmm. You know, when people throw popcorn at me. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he was on the stand the other day um, in defense of himself, and he said something along the lines of, I was sitting there and he was yelling at me, this monster. And I'm like, all right, we're done. We're done. (laughs) Seriously. Seriously. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And just that's disgusting. That is disgusting. All of my sympathies, all of my sympathies to his widow and Mm -hmm. his daughter who had to grow up without a father because of this person's actions. Mm -hmm. So um, sending all of my best. Yes. to that family absolutely because it makes me it makes my blood fucking boil and i mean imagine how angry you are just imagine how angry she is oh, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine, imagine. I, mm-hmm. I can't i can't Mm-mm. i just i just can't that's unfortunate that's very very eight unfortunate years. it took eight years for it to go to trial mm. i i find that just, very fishy too the defense attorney kept filing uh extension claims And then of course the pandemic happened, Mm -hmm. but it was just again and again and again and again, they kept pushing back this trial. Mm -hmm. And truthfully, my, and this is, again, this is, this is Charlie's amateur theory. I really think what they were trying to do was delay it to the point where he would die and they never would have had to go to trial. Correct. Correct. I could actually 100% agree with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. But now he gets to go back home to his family, just like he has for the last eight years. It basically took two weeks out of his life. Oh, Mm-hmm. Poor when guy. he took when he took the 43 year old out of his life completely and mm-hmm. wow just i'm honest and i you know i don't care at this point i really think that a good reason why also is because he was previously law enforcement you know mm-hmm. those they they band together they band together mm-hmm. and they're never wrong and it's just it's proven time and time again though that this shit happens mm-hmm. 
and just <sighs> yeah it's just very frustrating it is it is in my very, opinion very that person is a, in my opinion that person's a murderer he's yeah. just straight up a murderer i and agree I can't even deal i agree wow <clears throat> but yeah wow. so Wow. So that article I read was published on the 26th of February, by the way. And that was, uh, I read it from CNN. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So like just this morning, oh, literally this morning. Well, it was, it was published this morning, but the jury came back last, last night. late last night. Got it. Got it. All right. So now that I've thoroughly pissed off Jovi and I'm sitting here thoroughly pissed <laughs> off, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to her for today's bed crime story. Me, me, me. Um, this probably won't make you feel any less pissed off, but you know. <laughs> Hey, yeah, you know. I mean, that's kind of what we do here. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. It kind of goes with the territory. Mm-hmm. Um, today, I am actually doing a story that was brought to my attention by my stepdaughter um, because I was trying to figure out who I wanted to do a story on. Um, and since my last episode was quite a heavy hitter, I was like, I need to not do something so long. Like, I want something. Mm-hmm shorter and she's like well I did a paper my sophomore year for this murder for my criminology class and I was like oh so I am doing the story of the Eastburn family murders um Mm -hmm. my sources for today are that said paper (laughs) (laughs) um truecrimeedition.com soapboxy.com and abcnews.go.com. So ABC News. I don't know why there's mm-hmm. go there, but ABC News. <laughs> go. go. Woo. Freeze frame. Um, <laughs> so let me, me jump. With my hand up, my feet in the air like this. <laughs> Freeze frame. Who new girl. Ugh. Everybody Ugh. watch it if you haven't already. Or watch mm-hmm. it again because it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So I'm going to jump right in. The East Burns who consisted of Gary and Catherine, along with their three daughters, Kara, who was five, Erin, who was three. And I'm going to say this both ways throughout the story. And I know I will. It's either it's going to be Jana or Jana. And that's just mm-hmm. me going back and forth in my head. So mm-hmm. yeah, Jana in this instance, <laughs> I'm sure the next time I say it will be Jana, but Jana was 21 months old. Um, as a family, they were excited about their upcoming transfer overseas, even though it would be a little nerve wracking going from the United States over to Europe because it's, it's a different culture over there. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but they were super excited about it. Gary being in the military, they knew that they'd have plenty of support and the base that they were assigned to was really large and accommodating to its American service members and their families. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie, who is Catherine, and the girls knew that they'd miss their family and friends, but they were super, super heartbroken about having to leave their family dog, Dixie, who was a red setter behind. Uh, due to strict regulations, they were, it, it kind of prohibited them from bringing her along. Like they would have had, she would have had to be quarantined and, and all mm-hmm. that. And just the flight alone. Um, and they didn't want to put her through that either. Can I ask a question? Sure. Is the dog okay? The dog's fine. Okay. The dog's fine. No, <laughs> no, no. Needed to know. Okay. No, no, no. The, the dog's fine. The dog's fine. Okay. But this is just a very important thing to note for this case. Got it. Um, so with a heavy heart, Katie placed a classified ad in their local paper um, that serviced Fayetteville and the Fort Bragg area. 
hoping to Mm -hmm. find a good family willing to take in Dixie and love her just the way that they did. Mm -hmm. Around nine o'clock on Tuesday, May 7th, 1985, Army Staff Sergeant, Sergeant, Sergeant Timothy Hennis, (laughs) Sergeant Timothy Hennis answered the classified ad. He and his wife, Angela, loved dogs, but their current pet was extremely jealous of their newborn daughter. Despite their best efforts, their current dog, Snowball, who was a mixed breed, it, it, she wasn't getting along with their new daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wanted to get an, they wanted to get another dog that came from a family that preferably had kids. So she, the dog was like, okay, I've been around kids. I can handle this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why they responded to the ad and they talked it over with Katie and then Dixie became theirs. Timothy went over their house to go pick up Dixie. And before he left, he asked Katie if he could use the restroom. She obliged because it was a fellow soldier, soldier, and she didn't think anything. I know the story. Oh, you do? I know the story. This is a bad one. This is bad. Yes. Um, So yeah, she didn't think anything of it. She's like, yeah, sure. Go Mm -hmm. ahead. Use, use the potty, whatever. Pee away. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Tim soon left, thanked Katie for both the use of the facilities and Dixie he put the dog on a leash and started towards home, eager to introduce his daughter, Christina and Dixie. Gary, who was Katie's husband, was a captain in the Royal Air Force. And he was currently at that time, he was in Montgomery, Montgomery Alabama for training. And that was about 500 miles away um, from Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. The family spoke on the phone every Saturday, but when he called his wife for the couple's morning call, she didn't pick up. Back in May of 1985, there were no cell phones or anything. So the most that he could do was sit by the phone and wait for her to call back. Right. On Sunday, May 12th, 1985, the Eastburn's next door neighbor, Army Sergeant Bob Seafelt, arrived home after bailing out one of his soldiers who had a little too much fun the night before and wound up (laughs) in police custody. Uh, When he returned home, he was greeted by his worried wife, who had noticed the papers piled up on the Eastburn's doorstep. Mm. The family car was in the driveway, and the baby stroller was parked in its usual place by the back door. The more Bob thought about it, he realized he hadn't seen the family in at least three days. He decided that a little more investigating was in order. He went up to their front door, rang the doorbell. There was no answer, but he could hear baby Jaina crying inside. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Once he got back home, he called the police and then he called the East Burns babysitter, Julie. And I I had to put this in, had like, I spelled it how you say it. And I still don't even know Mm -hmm. if I'm going to say it correctly. So I, my apologies. Cherniak. Yeah. Julie Cherniak. It's, it's weird Mm -hmm. because it has that CZ and I never know how Mm -hmm. to say the CZ. So my apologies, Julie, if, uh, if you hear this. Um, so he called Julie. She came rushing over. Bob was waiting outside the Eastburn residence when she arrived. Julie peeked into the window and saw a baby, saw a baby Jana standing in her crib all alone, arms outstretched. Reacting on instinct, Julie began looking for a possible way into the home, but Bob convinced her to wait until the police arrived. Officer William Toman was the first to arrive. Forcing open the window, he retrieved the crying infant and a stack of diapers and handed her over to Bob. Saying he smelt something horrible, he told Bob to stand by as he went to check 
to see what the source of the smell was. We know what it was. <laughs> That's when he found the bodies of Katie, Aaron, and Kara. And he called oh in the deaths to the department. God. Uh... Yes. Yes. Five-year-old Kara had been stabbed in the chest multiple times and was found curled up under a Star Wars blanket. 32-year-old Katie was found without her trousers or underwear on and had been raped. She had also been stabbed 15 times. Three-year-old Erin had received blunt force trauma to her chest and back and all of their throats had been cut. Oh my God. That's overkill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This family was massacred. Just Mm -hmm. fucking massacred. Gary Eastburn was contacted soon after by Detective Jack Watts. After days of uneasiness about being able to reach his family, Gary remembered his reaction to the detective's call. And this is a quote from him. When I answered the phone, the first thing I said was, how many of them are dead? Oh, God. Yeah. He wouldn't tell me anything. He just said that there had been a death in the family and I needed to get home ASAP. Upon Gary's arrival home, he walked the house once the bodies had been removed um, to see if there was anything missing. Katie's bank card, an envelope missing around $300, and the password for the bank card appeared to be the only things that had gone missing. Mm. Investigators frantically gathered evidence and scoured the neighborhood for anyone who might have seen something. Desperate, the police even turned to baby Jaina. Uh, who was the only survivor, to see if there were any clues that she could offer. They brought in child psychologist Helen Brantley to question Jaina and show her pictures of her family and police photo lineups. According to her summary report, Helen was not certain that Jaina had seen what happened that night, but had clearly heard things. Still, it was nothing that could conclusively help the investigation. Right, right. A young black man named Patrick Cohn came forward and said that he had seen a man leaving the Eastburn residence three nights ago, which would have been the same night of the murders. Eager Mm -hmm. to solve the triple homicide, investigators listened intently as Patrick told them, this is a quote, I was walking home from my girlfriend's house at about 3.30 in the morning. As I was walking, I saw a white Chevette parked on the road. Then I saw this white dude walking down the lady's driveway. I passed right by him and he said, I'm getting an early start this morning or something like that. Then I watched him get in his white Chevette and drove off. Mm. Patrick then went on to provide a very thorough description of the man saying he was approximately six, four with blonde hair that peeked out um, from underneath a black knitted cap, wearing a black members only jacket atop a white shirt and blue jeans. That that was very 80. That's specific. And it's very, very specific. specific. Jeez. Three days after the murders, the police publicly broadcast via television and radio a request for a man who had answered the classified ad about the dog. um, Have them contact the police. That way they could ask them what's going on because obviously it was right around the time of the murder. The plea was accompanied by a composite sketch created from Patrick Cohn's description. Tim Hennis was watching the evening news with his wife, Angela, when the investigator's request was reported and was shaken by the similarities between himself and the composite sketch. Along with his wife and baby girl, Hennis drove to the police department in his white Chevette and offered (laughs) and offered to assist in any way possible. He willing, he willingly answered all of their questions without the aid of an attorney, nor did he even request one. Hmm. Jeez, mm-hmm. it's either real bold uh-huh. or real he's dumb. 
or yeah like yeah. oh good <laughs> yeah it didn't escape police how closely tim resembled the sketch or that he also drove a white chevette although yeah. D- although <laughs> back in that day Me dna either. was still a few years away um mm-hmm. and being used in criminal investigations police still requested hair blood and semen samples from tim uh, the mm-hmm. latter because Katie Eastburn had been raped shortly before her death. Tim willingly obliged again without the advice of an attorney. So I'm going to lean more towards bold. Bold. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> bold. <laughs> Tim and Angela returned to their home, believing that they had done all they could to hopefully bring justice for the Eastburn family. So they were shocked when investigators knocked on the door later that evening with an arrest warrant for Tim. Really? Yeah. Are you shocked? Yeah. You're shocked. You're shocked. Seriously. Really? I mean, okay. Kind of obvious. Kind of obvious. Yeah. I digress. Tim's neighbors came forward and stated that they had seen him burning items in a barrel outside of his home, and he'd stood there for five hours tending to the fire. They'd never seen him burn anything in a barrel before, and they found the behavior ho- behavior odd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His local dry cleaner also came forward and told police that Tim had come in the day after the murders to have his jacket cleaned. And guess what kind of jacket it was? A members, a members only. only. <laughs> when questioned, <sighs> when questioned, Tim's landlord told police that Tim was late in his with his rent that month. His tenant owed $345 and he'd been able to pay after he'd been able to pay that rent after a few days of the murders oh you mean like mm-hmm. from the 300 dollars mm-hmm. that was missing from the cash envelope yeah okay. yeah 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 so as you could see all this is stacking up against him i mean it's like dude yeah exactly <laughs> yeah exactly bob hennis tim's dad immediately hired the high profile fayetteville law firm of beaver holt richardson strinlick Str- stem Okay, these German last names are killing wow. me. They're, they're just... Well, and also, like, could you have any more possible attorneys as a partner in this freaking law firm? Can right. you just say, like, every attorney in Fayetteville at law? Right. So, you know what? There's, like, there's like three more names. So, he hired a, Fayette, a Fayetteville law firm. That's it. Right. That's it. That happened to be high profile. Exactly. The end. Boom. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Two of their senior partners, Gary Beaver and Billy Richardson, were considered to be the best criminal defense attorneys in the state of North Carolina. Right out of the starting gate, the firm hired. Beaver, huh? Yes. <laughs> Damn. Oh, I knew that was coming. I was beaver prepared joke. for it. <laughs> get it? It's a beaver joke. <sighs> yes. Yes, we get it. Right out of the starting gate, the firm hired the services of private investigator Bob Nelligar. His job was to retrace the steps of police detectives, scrutinize the evidence, and look for information or clues police may have missed. Julie, the family's babysitter, was the first to be interviewed. She told them that Mm -hmm. Katie thought she had a stalker. The family had received hmm. mm-hmm. the family had received crank calls for months before the murders, and sometimes the caller spoke about doing sexual things to Katie. Well, that's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. She also that she also admitted to her fascination with Dr. Jeffrey McDonald's case. Um, and side note, this was the dude who was convicted convicted in August of 1979. Um, He's of, the one with the watch, right? Yes, a murder was in his watch. Yes, yeah, of murdering his pregnant wife and two daughters in February of 1970. Um, yeah. that's a case for another day. That's also that's a crazy one too. Yeah, so. 
be on the lookout for that. I'm sure that's going to come one day. Bolo for that one, guys. <laughs> Bolo for that one. Um, so, yeah, she was obsessed with that case. Um, her belief in his innocence and her male exchanges with the convicted murderer. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Girl. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the, again, Girl. it's the whole Tim Bundy. It's the whole Ted Bundy thing where I guess I, I, whatever. Whatever. I guess. She also admitted to two other important facts. Her step, her stepbrother strongly resembled Tim Hennis. Um, and she actually showed photos when the investigators were skeptical. And that she had been assisting vice squads and setting up busts of local drug dealers, believing on one occasion she had been followed from the Eastburn family home um, by one of the angry drug dealers, although she could not positively identify the man. Mm. Nelligar and the attorneys set up two separate reenactments of the scene described by Patrick Cohn. For the first one, along with the Tim Hennis lookalike, they went to the Eastburn residence at the same early hour with the same foggy, moonless settings with a video camera in hand. The Patrick stand-in was unable to see Tim to, was unable to see the Tim lookalike. The area was just poorly lit during those pre-dawn hours. At the second reenactment that failed to prove the eyewitness testimony, Patrick was present at the at the request of the investigators, and he admitted that he believed he was mistaken. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Nelligar also spotted several flaws in the evidence, such as hairs and fingerprints found at the scene that could not be matched to Hennis or any known friend or family member of the Eastburn family. And the size nine shoe print uncovered by police was extremely too small for Tim's size 13 feet. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Forensic expert Paul Stumbaugh visited the Eastburn residence six months after the crime. There he located a condom package undiscovered by police underneath the dresser. According Hmm. to Paul, when compared to known facts about the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Eastburn, this suggested consensual sex had occurred in the home prior to the murders as it was. And as it was his experience, rapists very rarely carried condoms to commit their violent acts. Additionally, Mm -hmm. After spending several hours in the home and poring over reports and evidence, he was of the mind that the murders were committed by two assailants. That was his theory. Mm-hmm. Nelligar wrapped up his investigation by speaking with Lucille Cook. Um, she was a woman who had used her ATM card at the same time and place that Katie's missing ATM card had been used. And this was obviously after her death. She said she saw no one during her transaction. He also spoke with two residents that lived on the same block, Chuck and Sherry Radke, who claimed to have gone out for an early morning walk at the same time as Patrick Cohn, who had said he had seen the man in the white Chevette. According Mm. to them, they only did not see Patrick, but they had seen no one else at that hour. So they didn't see nobody. Right. They didn't see what Patrick saw. Um, However, they said a few nights later, they had indeed witnessed a blonde man with a crew cut wearing a black beret and a members only jacket carrying a large black duffel bag over his sold over his soldier over his shoulder, walking down the street at the same time the Eastburn murders would have occurred a few nights before. So they so yeah, I know. So they Mm -hmm. saw a man around that time, just not the night of the murders. But so I don't know why that's relevant, but I mean, I guess so because it it was the same description that Patrick gave. I don't know. Right, right, right. 
Um, so basically saying like this could actually be a person who lives in this area. Right. Because we saw him a couple nights after that. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Police and prosecutors, however, admittedly stuck to their belief in Tim's guilt. Mm-hmm. They badgered Patrick Cohn about his retracted identification of Tim Hennis and prosecutor William Van Story the fourth <laughs> argued that oh, okay the fourth though <laughs> I mean it wasn't the third right no no it was the fourth it was because if it was him I'd believe it but the fourth yeah thing? I don't know I don't know <laughs> <Here he's> out. <laughs> argued that just because hair and fingerprint samples didn't match Tim that didn't mean he couldn't have committed the crimes true it's very true mm-hmm. on july 4th 1986 after 12 hours of deliberation the jury returned a guilty verdict on one count of first degree rape and three counts of first degree murder tim hennis was sentenced to death three times so he's going to die mm-hmm. three times like he's hey. going to be dead and they're going to do die. it again and again die 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 <laughs> Just days after being booked into Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina, Tim Hennis received a postcard from a mysterious Mr. X that read, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastbourne, the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. Bold. Yeah. Also bold. <laughs> yes. His attorneys waved it off as a hoax, but they kept the postcard on file nonetheless because... Mm-hmm. you never know you never know no the prosecution received an almost identical postcard but would continue to deny it even when specifically requested in discovery motions so <laughs> eh, whatever tim's tireless attorneys continued to spend hours preparing and arguing his appeals after more than two years of being on death row tim's conviction was overturned and sent back to the courts for a retrial with which began on February 27th of 1989. Mm -hmm. This time, the prosecutor introduced a new witness, Elisa Peabody, a neighbor who had previously stated she saw no one the night of the murders, but was now adamant that she, in fact, seen Tim Hennis leave the scene of the crime. (sighs) I know. I I know. Because you figure this has been on TV and newspapers for how long now? Correct. And that's that's why again this is why they're starting to uh say that victim that uh witness testimony can no longer really be Mm -hmm. that can't be like the only thing that you go by because of exactly that Mm -hmm. thing you see it in the news so often and it's a story that you hear so often that you start to have false memory of Mm -hmm. seeing it too exactly egg zachary Mm-hmm. It was of little consequence to the defense who had come to court this time with both guns blazing and more aggressively took on prosecutor witness such as Lucille Cook, the ATM lady who first said no one was at the machine at the time. And then mm. later on retracted that and said that she remembered Hennis waiting a minute or two before leaving the ATM area. Defense attorney used courtroom the theatrics to demonstrate the length of a minute or two along with bank record timestamps to prove that lucia was lying so again the same thing she's like oh Mm -hmm. wait no i was wrong i did Mm -hmm. see him i mean okay liar Mm -hmm. you liar lies the state star witness the flaky patrick cone wasn't exempt from scrutiny when he was forced to admit he had been charged with theft using a stolen atm card but had questionable questionably been able to avoid being brought to trial 
Interesting. Mm -hmm. Sean Bruckner, Patrick's friend, testified to having lost a wallet which contained a letter written by his friend in which he admitted he didn't know who or what he really saw the night of May 9th, 1985. Mm. But the defense saved their best for last. With the help of a new private eye, TV O'Malley. Yes, that's that's his name. I thought it was a TV at first. No, it's TV O'Malley. TV O'Malley, yes. huh? <laughs> the attorneys were able to locate the mysterious walker seen by Chuck and Sherry and later by newspaper carrier Charlotte Kirby. Jaws dropped when John Rawpatch entered the courtroom after being called to stand. John could have been Tim's identical twin brother. Jurors mm-hmm. and spect- spectators, I was going to say spectacles, jurors and spectators were stunned when John testified that he was 6'4", always wore a black members only jacket, black toboggan, white t-shirt and dark corduroy pants, and he always carried his book bag over his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Following the presentation made by the defense, especially the appearance of John, it became no surprise when Tim Hennis was acquitted on all accounts. Mm-hmm. In 2006, Gary Eastburn received a call from Detective Biddle. Technology had finally caught up, and the rake kit used on Katie that had been, um, no, technology had finally caught up, and the rake kit used on Katie had been found at the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department, and it was sent to the crime lab, and the DNA swabs from Katie were tested. The mm-hmm. semen found in Katie's body was a match to Tim Hennis. <laughs> That's insane. It's just insane. The whole thing is so insane. Okay. Now he already went through two trials. So now but he- it's new evidence. So it's not like it's double jeopardy, but it was how I it's it, yes, it's new evidence, but he was already convicted. And then the second acquitted. trial, he was acquitted. Um, but Okay. I thought that if you were, and again, this is, I thought, I always thought that if you were acquitted, as long as new evidence came to light and you didn't, that you didn't have in the first trial, you're able to try again. I don't know if they would consider this new evidence though, because they've had it. They just, because they had it. They just didn't have the ability to test it. Correct. That's a tricky little loophole. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Mm. now the problem that is now being faced is that this would be considered double jeopardy. Tim had already been tried for the murder of Katie, Aaron, and Kara and couldn't be taken to court again. However, Tim Hennis was military. In 2007, Army, fish, Army officials reopened the case mm-hmm. after experts claimed they had linked DNA from the 22-year-old murder to Tim. By this time... 49-year-old Tim had retired from the military, but was forcefully reactivated to stand trial under military jurisdiction. I love it. Mm-hmm. And while Dubber Jeopardy prevented state officials from retrying Tim, even with the new evidence, the federal government is considered a sovereign authority onto itself yep. and therefore separate from the powers of the states. Yep. So very tricky and very smart of them to smart smart yes yes smart yes love it 
Although Tim initially stuck to his story of only visiting the Eastburns to claim the dog that was listed in the classified, he later claimed that he and Katie had had consensual sex the night of the murder. He did not disclose this important fact before because, according to Tim, he was afraid and did not wish to add to Gary and Jana's um, grief. Bullshit. Well, I just love how, like, when everything first happened, you're like Captain Bold over there. You're like, yeah, here's my semen. Yes. Here's my spit. Blah, blah, blah. And now you're like, but I didn't want to say anything. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, how the turntables are turning, sir. <laughs> That's why they're called turntables. <laughs> the military jury rejected Tim's claims and on April 9, 2010, found him guilty on three accounts of premeditated murder. At sentencing, Gary Eastburn was asked to speak. After the murders of his wife and children, he and Jaina had eventually moved to England in 1988. There, he'd met a nurse who he married, and after a few years living in the UK, they eventually all moved back to America. When asked what he missed the most about his family, Gary replied, them. I miss being with them. Tim Hennis was eventually sentenced to a dishonorable discharge from the army and to be put to death. He was transferred to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, where he still resides today. Mm. He's the only person who's been tried for three. (laughs) He is the only person who's been tried for life three times after not guilty and guilty verdicts. He's unlikely to be put to death due to presidential approval for military execution, which hasn't happened since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. In February 2020, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces Armed Forces Armed Armed Forces rejected his appeal. When interviewed by the Seattle Times in 2010, Gary Eastburn said, "I'm perfectly happy if he spends the rest of his life in jail. However, yeah. if they did execute him, it was no more than he deserved." Uh, preach. Yeah. And um, I was reading an article also um, on ABC News where Jana had said she didn't understand why he killed everybody but her and how, like, Ugh. that guilt is on her shoulders. Like, why? Yeah, they... that poor thing. Can you imagine no. the amount of therapy that poor girl has to go to? No, no, I can't. And, like, because, like, survivor's guilt is real in and of itself, but, like, to be the only person to have survived that yeah and like purposefully it's not like yeah it's not like he attacked her and she just happened to survive no that's different i think correct but like the fact that he didn't even touch her yep i can't even imagine the guilt that she feels yep um and i'm actually gonna read this really quick uh mm-hmm. uh Jana had actually attended tim's third trial um in her victim's impact statement Jana tried to express the feelings of loss and sadness that she had struggled to understand for so long. He took the opportunity for me to remember or to have my mom at my graduation or my prom or anything like that. My biggest thing is why didn't he kill me? Why didn't he? I don't know. Mm, Like baby that that's just, that's just sad. That's just, I can't even imagine the things that she goes through and, I mean that whole and she's family. The same, she's the same age as us too, right? Because she was twenty one year, twenty months old in nineteen eighty five. So she's probably about the yeah, same age around, as us too, around our age, yeah, give or take yeah, a year. Poor thing. But mm. that's just it's so it's so sad, and I don't I don't understand. 
I, I don't understand what compels people to do that. How upsetting. I, I can't even. And I just, and, and then Gary too, not being home, being in a completely different state. And just when he thinks that his wife is calling him, it's a detective saying he needs to get home because there's a death in the family. Like, holy shit. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. But yeah, no, this one was a super sad one as well. And as yeah. I was like re- reading my stepdaughter's report <laughs> and like reading more about this, I'm like three times. Really? Like that's yeah. insane that they tried. Yeah. Three times. This is definitely a story that I've, I've heard before. I know this one before. And the thing, I think the thing that makes this one so interesting to listen to or to hear about is just like the back and forth like mm-hmm. it, it literally is a real life like soap opera mm-hmm. did he didn't he this was the evidence but it also couldn't be him because mm-hmm. the shoe size was too small and blah 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 and then yeah it's just it's crazy to me it it really is absolutely insane and like and like we had mentioned when um we got to that part like the fact that he was like oh yeah here take everything blah blah, blah. like yeah seriously ballsy well and it's almost as if like you have that false sense of security because Mm -hmm. at that time like yeah you're not going to get anything from having my cheek swab or my semen sample or but like you're not going to get yeah sure take it fine and like you had an you had an excuse to have been there because you said that you were there so like if they found your hairs or whatever you're like all Mm -hmm. right i was there i got the dog like you knew that Mm mm-hmm it's just it, oh it's crazy it is crazy it, it is absolutely crazy and but. thank goodness for that guy who happened to walk by yeah yeah like seriously because if if it, even though like um he did write a note to his friend saying he's not sure what he's seen at least it was a starting point right but the whole thing is is he was so detailed i mean so detailed I know. Yeah. and everything was so accurate yeah like I- I honestly think that the prosecutors made him double think everything that he said. Like, I think the pressure mm-hmm. from them didn't help either. Um, but like you said, it was so detailed. He couldn't just pull that out of thin air. He couldn't. No, not at all. Mm-mm. Not at all. Mm-mm. But yeah. I really want to know why that other guy was walking around with a beret on though. I mean. Like who? A beret? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, whatever. He, that's his thing, I guess. Fashion choices, I guess. Who knows? Yeah. That's like his. That's his signature. Exactly. Oh, it's the beret guy. <laughs> exactly. Don't mind him. That's just beret guy. That was the Eastburn dude murders. That is a. That is such a crazy story. It that is. is such a crazy, it effing is. story. It's a lot of and back like, and forth. <laughs> yes, and I think the whole thing too, like with the, the double jeopardy part of it, like having like that conversation, mm-hmm. is just. Oh God, it's so crazy. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. It's I'm, so crazy. I'm just glad that they found that loophole. You know what I mean? And it kind of worked out that he was military because that's they what I was just going to say. They're lucky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if not, then it would have ended right there. That's it. Yep. And it just would have been like, we know you did it, but we literally can't, can't do, anything do anything about, about it. it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And like, believe me, I totally understand. I totally understand the point of double jeopardy. Oh, yeah. I get it. Absolutely. Because then it's like you can't like hound a person over and over and over again if they've been found innocent. Correct. I, I, I get it. Or I should say they've been found like not guilty. Right. I don't want to say innocent because we all know that's not the case. Right. Um, in, in a lot of times. But anyway, 
So I get it. But at the same time, like in that particular instance, the fact that the DNA evidence like didn't really exist, Mm -hmm. like, yes, you had it, but you didn't have anything. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I I agree. And I feel like there should be a clause to double jeopardy first thing like for that instance like it's it's a little bit different i don't know it is it is great story thank you thank Thank you jovi thank you you could thank you could thank my stepdaughter too because (laughs) she's good at supplying me stories like she she supplied me this story and uh the supreme gentleman um, yes, she supplied me with the uh, school massacre. Yeah, school massacre. Yeah, so basically, she's going to be our go-to. She's one of our, <laughs> it's like her and Criminal Minds Weekly yeah. are our two favorite resources. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but all right, well, that does it for another episode of Bed Crime Stories. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, we appreciate all of you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find us on socials, uh, specifically Instagram at Bed Crime Stories. Um, if you have a story suggestion that you want to throw out there, so maybe like, hey, maybe do another one if you've done one before. Maybe you could be uh, Jovi Stepped Order with how many times we use one of your stories. <laughs> uh, make it a competition. Legit. Legit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can send us uh, either a DM through Instagram or you can shoot us an email, bedcrimestoriespod at gmail.com. Um, wherever you are listening to us, go ahead and like, rate, review, subscribe, all of the fun stuff that helps us get our podcast in front of other ears. Um, or how about uh, in once again, other we, ears, not in front of in ears. In other ears. I like in front of ears. <laughs> okay. I'm like, hey, what's up, ear? <laughs> listen to me. Put me in your ear oh and listen. <laughs> so uh once again we we love you guys so much please be kind to one another we will talk to you all next week but until then sweet, sweet dreams, dreams. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.